Hi, this is Tamsin Granger. This is Dan Abuha. With Tamsin and Dan, read the paper on Sunday, January 26th, 2020. It's a little shivery today, but we're drying out. Mm-hmm. We had an enormous amount of rain yesterday, over two inches, they say. Yeah. But thank goodness it wasn't the functional equivalent of snow. Mm. Because we'd be snowed in for a while. We've got some birthdays coming up this week. Uh, Granger family birthdays. Uh, my sister Sarah, is, uh, her birthday is um, Friday. And my brother Steve. Okay. On Sunday, February 2nd. Groundhog Day. Mm. So what do you got? Well, uh, we saw a movie this week. We saw The Farewell. Uh, the Farewell uh, is the movie uh, that's about um, a family in China, or I should say spread over a little bit into the United States, and the matriarch of the family um, is diagnosed with cancer, terminal cancer. And the question is, um, should they, should the family inform her of that? Well, the question, there's no question uh, can, as far as the family's concerned. They won't do that. The Chinese way is is not to inform the matriarch of that, is not to disclose it, even as you know the family feels strongly about it and has, and wants to celebrate her life and wants to say goodbye. So they have to create this uh, covert event, which is a wedding, which is a way to gather their whole family there and, in a sense, touch base with her and acknowledge her, even without giving away what's actually going on. So that, on the surface, what the story is about. Um, although I felt uh, much more was going on than that. Yeah, yeah. So the the American branch of the family, yeah, um, which uh, includes Aquafina playing right. the, granddaughter. the granddaughter, right, uh, comes back, and and Aquafina being raised most of her life, yeah. in the U.S. She's questioning just, this. Yeah, she, she's she doesn't understand this practice. She says, well, you know, what if she wants to say goodbye?" Right, but even beyond that. You know, she's just overwhelmed by the thought that she's going to lose her grandmother. She's very close to her grandmother. And, uh, you know, each scene between her and her grandmother is fraught with emotion. Uh, uh, they clearly have this very close connection, which I think effectively is portrayed on the screen. Uh, and it becomes, I thought it was more, more interesting than I thought it would be. And the reason was because it's a very uh, realistic feeling uh, portrayal of this family, this Chinese family. And what happens in part, you know, some people, in this case, Aquafina's family, move to the U.S. for greater economic opportunity. And when they come back, <clears throat> you know, the relationship's just a little bit different. And uh, what did they gain? What did they lose by moving? Um, which was quite interesting because there didn't seem to be much difference between the economic opportunity in, in China on the one hand and the U.S. on the other Maybe there was. Maybe well, it was hard to tell. It was hard to tell. But uh, maybe there was, maybe there wasn't. But the real point was, clearly, the family is such a strong bond that the, uh, you know, Aquafina's mother and father and Aquafina lost something by moving. That uh, it was hard for them to part. That, uh, it was, you know, it was, that connection was so strong and so important to them. And and therefore, uh, when they come back, they realize to some degree the price they paid. And, and Aquafina talks about the price they paid because you just lose the opportunity to operate as a family on a, re- on a regular basis. Right. So, I mean, that to me, I think, was the principal dynamic. I mean, I thought I really enjoyed the movie a great yeah. deal. It was directed by Lulu Wang. Right. 
and uh, based in part on her own personal right. experience. Right. And uh, she describes part of what the movie is about as being the immigrant experience stra- straddling those two cultures. Okay. The new culture, <clears throat> the American culture. Right. Correct. And uh, the original, in this case, Chinese culture. And uh, you could really, there was really a tension there and uh, an examination there that uh, I thought was uh, right. engaging. And it's not just told from the American side. I mean, Aquafina is a, a principal character and you certainly get her perspective, but you certainly get the Chinese perspective at the same time. Right. And, and, and to me, the principal character in the movie is not Aquafina, who, who I do think is very good, but the mother, the woman who's diagnosed who is the matriarch of the family, who is keeping right. it together. And you suspect the whole time that she knows what's going on, but that, 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 that's neither here. She's quite good. Yeah, she's running the whole thing. And there's a, you know, and, uh, there's a great scene at the end, at the wedding, yeah. where she's there with her old buddies from army days. Right. And uh, these old guys are saying, yeah, I, you know, I was about to propose to her once I saw her pick up that gun and fire away. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but he, here's the thing. Yeah. No Oscar nominations. Well, didn't Aquafina get nominated? Did no, you know? no, baby. Well, all right. Uh, none, <laughs> zero, zilch. It's gotten a lot of awards. It got a Golden Globe yes. for Aquafina. Yes, but uh, even the grandmother did not get supporting actress uh, nomination. Well, that's a hard sell. She's, um, she's, she's a well-known Chinese actress. Uh, her name is uh, Xu Zhen Zhao. Uh, that is the way it's pronounced. And... Uh, she was good. I thought she was very good. And I thought uh, the um, movie did a good job at uh, sort of making the Chinese context accessible. Right. Okay, not Americanizing, not dumbing it down, but uh, kind of giving you a, um, you know, an insight. Well, it was, it was more than accessible. I mean, accessible is a fair word. But there were striking similarities between the the way the Chinese family operated and the way an American family would operate. Frankly, and the way an Italian American family would operate. And and you would see they're celebrating the wedding. They're doing things for the wedding that you could see in an Italian wedding. Uh, and, right, but there was nothing. Goofy. There was nothing cartoonish. About no, no, no. It. You know, uh, as we see with many, my big fat Greek wedding or something right. like that. So at a certain point, it's not a matter of the American experience, but of the Chinese experience. It's that the family experience is what matters. It, in a right. sense, overtakes the notion of the two cultures being involved. And uh, clearly, there's a tremendous benefit that all the members of the family derive from being part of that unit. Right. It was. It was not too cute. It was. Well, no, no. They, uh, heartfelt. They, they, and uh, it's making some money. Is it? Yeah, it, it you costs know, about three million to make. Yeah, right now, I so heard far that. the box office has been around twenty million. You know where it's not making money? Where? In China. They can't sell any tickets in China. I mean, they can. It's not illegal, but no one in China wants to see the movie. Yeah, because uh, do they need an insight into Chinese culture? It's not a Chinese enough uh, movie for them to see it as a Chinese uh, movie, and it's not, and it's not an American enough movie for them to see it as an American movie. Okay. It's just fun. Right. I mean, the people the people who made the movie kind of laugh about it because they've done all right. They said it's, it's, it's comical that we can't sell a ticket in China. Yeah. So whatever. All right. So uh, you had, uh, well, we both noticed that Fairwell's going bankrupt. Not Fair, Fairway's going bankrupt. Fairway. Fairway, the venerable produce stand slash uh, grocery store. 
um, that we got introduced to on the Upper West Side when uh, we were living there um, a zillion years ago. And I remember it as a bustling, uh, terrific place filled with not only bargains, but awfully good stuff, mm-hmm. uh, both in terms of produce, but also they would have, they had a, an incredible, uh, when we were there in the 80, uh, late 70s, early 80s, incredible selection of cheeses uh, that you couldn't find uh, anywhere else. Uh, they would have big shipments of, you know, like French mustard or cool stuff. And the cashiers were unbelievable. There would always be these great lines, these long lines, and they moved like lightning. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, uh, you know, it was it was a painless experience uh, compared to many shopping experiences No, it was, it was, a, it was a good experience. And we depended on it. And yeah. if you wanted good produce, um, you uh, hiked down. It was shocking. In the middle of Manhattan, you would get that kind of stuff. So I had been there um, a few years ago. Uh, the one in um, Manhattan that we used to go to. And it was kind of not great. Right. It was pretty empty, uh, both in terms of, I thought, uh, merchandise and uh, empty of people. Well, you know, so... And and so I was really kind of amazed because it seems like people are more than ever interested in... uh, Good things at a good price. Well, it is funny the way the article, the, several of the articles have been, well, how, you know, they've suffered the way others have suffered because they have the competition from Amazon, Amazon swallowing everything. And that's that's not it. That's not what's going on. What happened was Fairway overexpanded. They had that, uh, you know, 70th Street, whatever location in the middle of Manhattan. And then, then they went to an additional 125th Street. And then they had other locations beside. They were in Westbury where my parents were. Uh, Red Hook. Yeah, there were places that didn't have to be. Yeah, but I think it's a complex situation. Yeah, it is complex. Well, it's also at the same time they were bought by private equity. They borrowed on the assets. They had to pay a high interest rate to make the whole nut work. Right. And then they they declared bankruptcy in 2016. Yeah, it became a financial disaster. So it was mismanaged or maybe, you know, they got as much uh, as they could get out of the lemon and everybody who was a constituent got what they wanted out of it and now it's gone. But it's not because of Amazon. So, you know, that's the way it goes. It ran its course. Yeah, when we went to the one in Westbury, I frankly thought, again, looked dirty. They had a looked, lot of good, uh, you know, tremendous it, beer selection. They had a great beer selection. Yeah. But the, it, um, you know, I don't know what the story is, but it's a sad, sad departure. Right. Uh, I guess the, it was a departure that happened a while ago. Um, but uh, they're just making it official, shall we say, at this point. Fairway. Rest in peace. Um, speaking of produce, and speaking of, you know, a movie I might want to see, uh, there's an obituary for Frida Kaplan, Queen of Kiwi, who apparently, according to the Wall Street Journal, changed the way Americans eat. And the story is, she's another one of these great, uh, you know, entrepreneurial um, matriarchs. Uh, and uh, she was uh, born in 1923 and uh, just uh, passed away. Her parents were Russian immigrants. This is a story all sounding familiar. And uh, when she, um, after she had her first child, she's looking for work and she ends up in a business uh, owned by her husband's family, 
that has to do with produce. And the next thing you know, long story short, she's the one who introduces the American public to the kiwi, Belgian endive, the fuyu persimmon, fiddlehead ferns, donut peaches, jicama, star fruit, and more. And uh, she, you know, she's, she goes into the business not knowing anything about the business. They hire her as a bookkeeper. She's not even very good at that. And uh, she ends up uh, just doing great. She figures out how to market vegetables. Um, and when necessary, you know, kind of uh, jumps right in. Sells uh, 500 pounds of mushrooms while her bosses are away and doesn't know quite what to do uh, to uh, come up with the 500 pounds of mushrooms. Uh, but uh, she ends up helping people, you know, helping her suppliers pack them herself. So she's a can-do uh, woman. Um, and uh, there was a movie about her. What? There's a movie about her uh, called Fear No Fruit, a documentary uh, made in 2014. And I, I looked it up briefly. It gets some good reviews. It really does. How do we so miss I think we ought to take a look. Frida Kaplan, um, she said she was no good at uh, running a business. Her strength was marketing. And uh, her big secret was she was actually uh, herself allergic to kiwi. Oh, God. All but right. kiwi really came on strong. And I know uh, when I had the food business, you know, we put star fruit on the top of every fruit salad really? uh, for a catering affair. Oh, yes. It made everything look quite exotic. And you remember when we were riding our bikes across Italy, when we got um, closer to, uh, on the way, we're going down the Po River mm-hmm. on the way to Venice, towards Venice. Yeah. And um, there were many, many, many kiwi fields oh, yeah, you're right. in Italy. Hmm. And uh, at that time, uh, kiwi, uh, Italy was a major producer of kiwi, had discovered uh, that it was a good climate there. Hmm. Anyway, uh, happy to see that. Looking forward to streaming uh, Fear No Fruit yeah. and Frida Kaplan. So, too, uh, there's, in a sense, the departure, or at least the marking of the departure, of two major sports figures, maybe the two major sports figures in New York over the last 10 or 15 years, Derek Jeter and Eli Manning, um, both in different forms. Let's talk now for a minute about Derek Jeter. We'll talk about Eli Manning toward the end. I actually have more to say about Manning. Um, but uh, so Derek Jeter, it comes up in this form. Derek Jeter's first eligible now uh, for the Hall of Fame. Uh, and that was uh, as a week ago. And so when you retire, yeah, you need five you officially years. Officially retire, and then there's five years. Five years. Okay. And uh, you know, all Yankee fans, uh, you know, head over heels about Derek Jeter for years, and just panting, waiting for the day that he is officially uh, recognized and then enshrined in the Hall of Fame. Um, and as a matter of fact, the only issue being whether he's going to have a unanimous vote. Uh, on the first ballot. It's a big deal, frankly, Hall of Fame to get in on the first ballot. Uh, only person on unanimous vote uh, was uh, last year, Rivera, the reliever. Um, and uh, this is like a strange history. People, as a matter of honor, wouldn't vote for someone across the board because, for reasons no one can explain, Ruth did not get a unanimous vote. DiMaggio, Mays didn't. Uh, because you can't achieve perfection. That's the way it's oddly put. But in any event, the Yankee fans, all prime for Derek Jeter. 
uh, being uh, recognized in this way because he was perfection and he's that kind of iconic player. And what happened was the vote came in. He got it on the first ballot. He did not get a unanimous vote. There was one vote against. And Yankee fans uh, crying foul, uh, you know, that's terrible. He should have been unanimous on the one hand. And also Yankee fans strangely complaining. I shouldn't say Yankee fans. Some fans in New York, New York fans, complaining that someone else got in at the same time, a fellow named Larry Walker. And it seems odd that Larry Walker, who seems undeserving by comparison to Derek Jeter, um, got in on the same ballot, some criticism of that, because it should be Jeter's day. So it was an odd day in New York. So I don't want to dwell too much on this. Clearly, Jeter's a Hall of Famer, wonderful shortstop and all that stuff. Uh, but it's interesting that you can be uh, that kind of, that level of talent um, and recognize as such and overrated at the same time. And Jeter is terribly overrated. And and the reason he's overrated in New York and, and even elsewhere, for very good reason, is because Many uh, major leaguers toil under relative uh, anonymity, very little attention in small places in Arizona, places like that. And once in a while, they capture the attention of the national audience. Derek Jeter was playing shortstop for the New York Yankees, because every year is in the postseason. Every year is on national television. And then going on to the World Series, every year on national television, always part of the conversation. Played 20 years, every one of those 20 years. That's part of his thing, Okay. Everyone so knows. So you, you, you're basically saying that he had it too easy. No, he didn't have it too easy. I give him totally credit. He's a Hall of Fame ball player. But the idea that New York is thinking that he's an iconic ball player, he's more than that. Because in the Hall of Fame, you have many good players, but there are a few elite, two, three, four, five people who stand apart. Uh, and Jeter's in that group. He's not near in that group. He is, uh, this is an odd phrase, an average Hall of Famer. Uh, as a matter of fact. So is Rivera? In that group? Uh, actually, Rivera's overrated, too, but for the same reason. But, <laughs> in but your I'm, mind, all Yankees no, are overrated. No, 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 no. How do we feel about Babe Ruth? Overrated? No, no. Okay. But, but here, here's my my point. It's just this. Look, here, let me make the the, the, the the argument this way. The, the, the complaint that came in about Larry Walker, the fellow who got in with you at the same time, is how could he be a Hall of Famer? Uh, you need 75% of the vote. Just five years ago, he only had 10% of the vote. And camp- this was his last chance. And this was you, his you last chance. You only get chance. so many votes. You're right. Very good. This was his last chance. Okay. How could he have been crept up? You know, how, how is it? You know, what's going on? I mean, people aren't being as rigorous as they ought to be in the Hall of Fame. Clearly, if he had just 10% a few years ago and nothing's changed. Uh, well, let's look at the numbers, okay? Um, let me compare the two very quickly. I'm not going to bore you with all the numbers. It's a statistic called wins above replacement. Uh, which is supposed Wins to above, above replacement. Which I have measures, no idea what that means. Yeah, I didn't expect you would, but what it's supposed to do is measure your contribution to the team. Wins above replacement, in other words, uh, what, how many more games your team won uh, than if it would have had a replacement average player. That's what it's supposed to capture. It's okay. an all-encompassing. It says that Jeter's 72.4. It's a very good number. Larry Walker, 72.7. Okay. He's higher. Yeah. Jeter had a lot of hits, played for 20 years. Um, and uh, you have to credit him for that. Larry Walker played fewer years, 17 years, was injured a lot, um, doesn't have the same amount of hits. Home runs, well, uh, actually Larry Walker has uh, quite a few more home runs than Derek Jeter, but that's, he's a right fielder. It's a different position, so it's not really a fair comparison. RBIs is a, uh, a fair thing to compare. They both have the exact same amount of RBIs. Um, the other number that people really look at is OPS, Again, a new statistic. OPS is the sum of two figures, 
on base percentage, obviously good to be on base, yeah. and slugging percentage. Slugging percentage measures how many times you hit doubles, triples, home runs. Doubles, triples, home, home runs. runs. Slugging percentage. Okay. Uh, Derek Jeter has an OPS of 0.817. I should tell you uh, that usually the league leader is about 1,000. So 0.817 for a career is very good. Larry Walker is 965. Okay. For a career. It's an unbelievably high number. So you'd say, look, uh, these guys are sounding pretty close. Uh, um, surely um, there must another one to measure it is how many times was were these players recognized as the best players in the league? How many times did they win most valuable player? Mm-hmm. Larry Walker won it uh, once, as it is in 1991. Uh, Derek Jeter was never the most valuable player. He was Never the best player in baseball Okay, on any year. So my point is, uh, Derek Jeter is a uh, is a Hall of Famer, but a, a mortal Hall of Famer. Okay. A normal guy. And uh, so congratulations on that basis. But, All, right. Uh, All right. So if we're done hating on Derek... Uh... Listen, I'm just bringing a little reality to this situation. <laughs> Poor Derek. Poor Derek. I hope his uh, mom doesn't listen to this. Uh, anyway... Um... All right, so uh, how you doing there? You need any more coffee? No, I'm all right. We have, we have great coffee. Yeah. Um, Where's the coffee girl? Uh, where the uh, I made some fabulous coffee. Actually, the coffee was made. It's true Colombian coffee. Really? We have a secret supplier, hand delivered from Colombia. Oh yeah. Um, really? To us. Well, let's keep it a secret uh, and, then. And uh, we feel very fortunate that we get uh, the real stuff. Let's see. You know, they, they like to tell you all this coffee in the grocery store is Colombian, but who knows? We know we have the real stuff, and it's keeping us going today. We'll see. I I read what to me was quite an interesting article. I know um, you you feel the same way about this article that I feel about your uh, Hall of Fame. Uh, um, parade of numbers there, and uh, it's an article called "Fish versus Dams," and the dams are winning. And this was in the New York Times, written by Lisa Fotorero, and uh, it's about these thousands of dams across the U.S. I mean, really, this article is focusing on New York State, and uh, it's uh, about the the smallest dams that were built um, to facilitate operating all those factories during the 18th and 19th century, uh, especially, uh, you know, off, you know, along the Hudson River and et cetera. Um, You know, they would power, they would have mechanical, they were for mechanical power. Okay, paddles would turn and operate the plant machinery to make all kinds of stuff. Candles, felt, uh, wire, you know, whatever. Most of these factories are defunct now. There's no reason to have these small dams that harnessed the energy. And the other thing the dams do is prevent the fish migration that facilitates these fish breeding. Okay, so for example, along the Hudson River... Uh, you have 2,000 dams between New York City and Albany, okay? They're small, obsolete, abandoned, uh, serving no real purpose, okay? So why not get rid of them? 
and let uh, these fish, uh, you know, resume in the natural way. Uh, so it's an interesting article. has um, comments by various people, including John Waldman, a professor uh, in Queens, who wrote a book called Running Silver, Restoring Atlantic Rivers and Their Great Fish Migrations. Okay, most of these plant, most of these dams still exist just from inertia. Okay, some of them are state owned, whatever. A lot of them are privately owned, but uh, a they would take money to maintain, and people aren't doing that. But they also take money to uh, take down, and uh, so various organizations are working hard, uh, including the organization you might have heard of called Riverkeeper, uh, and they're working hard to kind of uh, publicize. Uh, the need for uh, doing something about these dams. So it has a lot of potential for improving natural you know, ways of life for the fish. But in some cases, people just aren't interested in doing it. In some cases, it's the cost. Although these organizations have been able to raise money, find money available uh, to um, subsidize or even take over the cost of um, taking apart these dams. The other thing is people kind of like the dams. Mm. They look like little waterfalls, mm. right? Or they create lakes. Now, in our little town of Cranberry, New Jersey, there's a dam. And it used to, you know, um, enable the Cranberry Mill right. to operate. Uh, and... Of course, there hasn't been a cranberry mill right. for many, many, many years. But the dam creates what we call the cranberry lake. And some years we skate on that. It's very scenic, so on and so forth. So we're not, you know, and other people like having that sort of pond or lake situation. And they panic when uh, the idea of having no dam uh, comes up. And then the water will just flow and you won't have the big... Lakes will just have, you know, a creek or a stream or, you know, a river. But if you if it's done right, those areas fill in with natural growth and can still be quite scenic and beautiful, but not necessarily, you know, bodies of water mm. the way they were. So um, it's a it's an interesting situation, and uh, it'll be interesting to see how uh, it's resolved. No, oh, there'll be uh, some time, I assume. Yeah, it's our opportunity um, to help nature reclaim these benefits. Yeah. Um, so it seems like a good thing to do since we don't need that yeah. right. power from that anymore. Um, the Mets appointed a new manager named Luis Rojas. Luis Rojas um, is completely unknown. Nobody knows him except, I guess, members of his family. Uh and uh, Whoa. I'll come back Whoa. to that later. Whoa. I mean, you, you can't be more under the radar. I mean, you're, you can't... still you're still miffed that they passed over you. No, for Rojas. No, if, if they passed, if they made me the manager, I'm, I'm more well known in baseball circles than Luis Rojas. It's come. Oh to really? Yeah. Oh really? But here's what's interesting about Luis Rojas, uh, his father. Luis Rojas' father is Philippe Lou. Now, you, yeah, have you heard the name Philippe Lou? Does that register with it, you? It has a certain uh, melodic tone to it that seems familiar. Okay, well, it is melodic. Uh, Philippe Lou was a famous uh, baseball player in the 1960s, and I grew up being a big fan of his, but put me aside. Uh, Philippe Lou was one of the first players in the National League, in the American League, too, from the Dominican Republic in 1955. Is there any chance he's not the guy who coached the Trenton Thunder? 
Uh, no. Uh, in 1955, Philippe uh, Lou was at the Pan American Games. He was competing. Uh, he was a runner, but people knew he was a baseball player. And a scout came to his father to sign him to a professional contract, and he offered him 200 pesos. I can't, I'm, not, I'm not doing the conversion, but 200 pesos is not a lot of money. Mm-hmm. It happened to be the amount of money that Philippe's father owed the grocer, and they signed the contract. Philippe Alou growing up in a place with no running water or no electricity. So he has a way to go. He gets to the United States where he runs against Jim Crow laws. He can't eat in restaurants. He's treated as a, as a minority. Uh, and he's given kind of a tough time. Somehow, uh, well, by dint of talent and, and, and effort and whatever, an application, he makes it fairly quickly to the San Francisco Giants. Uh, uh, and he makes it as a substantial player. He's the right fielder for the San Francisco Giants when they have people like uh, Willie Mays. And, uh, and, and he's a solid contributor to that team. And he plays for a number of years for the Giants. He's not a superstar, mm-hmm. but he establishes himself. Not only does he establish himself, but he establishes uh, sort of a he puts a flag in for other Dominican players. And the first two being his two brothers. Mm-hmm. So Matty Alou, his brother, mm-hmm. comes a few years later, leads the league in hitting. Mm-hmm. And Jesus Alou comes a few years later, who has a good career. I feel like Jesus Alou. Is he more prominent? No, Philippe's the best. But right, Ma- well, Ma- I don't know. Why, those names seem familiar. Well, they, oh, they were names because they were all three ballplayers, uh, outfielders on the same team, all brothers. That never happened before. It hasn't happened since. So there were games that they were the three outfielders were the three a lose. Uh-huh. Right? Uh, Philippe Lou then decides to stay in baseball after his baseball career is over, becomes a manager, can't get a major league job. Managers forever in the minor leagues, 10, 14, 15, 18 years. Gets a job finally with the Montreal Expos. You remember there was a baseball team in Montreal? I certainly do. Uh, he has tremendous success. Uh, and uh, not only does he have a tremendous success, uh, recognizes manager of the year, the team winning a whole lot of games, but he has his children, some of his children involved in the team. And you say, some of his children, what's going on? Uh, Jesus, uh, Philippe Lou had four wives and 11 children. And what's uh, a consecutively little, uh, or over time? Over time, and some of them are named Rojas, and some of them are named Lou. And then there's a complicated reason. The truth is, Philippe Lou's real last name is Rojas, because but the way they put the maiden name, mother's maiden name at the end, right? It's a Lou. It got confusing. So his children born in the Dominican Republic go by Rojas. Those born in the U.S. go by a Lou. Uh, the Montreal Expos have one of those Alous, Moises Alou who is a fantastic player, and they have another guy named Rojas, and it becomes a family affair. And who grows up in that environment but little Luis Rojas, who no one sees as a major league prospect, but he grows up in sleeping in his uniform, hanging out all the time, spending his entire <laughs> life in baseball, and he becomes a lifer. And so much so that he's been in the Mets organization for some time, and he's managed eight years in the, in the minor leagues. He never, you know, as a, as a ball player, got to the major leagues or anything like it. And so... Here we are. Uh, Beltron gets out. Mets want a guy. Maybe he'll work out fine. People always like Luis. Always had a smile on his face. Should learn have learned a lot from Philippe. Uh, we'll see. But there are two reasons the Mets don't like Met fans don't like this. And nothing to do with Luis Rojas. One is it's the cheap way out for the Mets to have hired one of these other category candidates like Joe Girardi. That would have been six million a year. They're probably paying Luis Rojas $600,000 a year. And you always worry about the Mets and that connection. And two is the Mets hired a guy with no profile who no one ever heard of because uh, Brody Van Wanigan, the, uh, the general manager, 
wants to dominate the team, wants to run the team, wants to sit down every day with a a manager that he can control and say, you should do this, you should do this, you should do this. That's one of the reasons Luis Rojas has the job. And that would be fine if Brody Van Lanigan knew anything about baseball. But as time is revealed, <laughs> he doesn't know anything about baseball. So, so, so this again, this is probably why you didn't get the job because Brody knew. I'm he too strong a personality. Yeah, that's right. right. Brody, yeah, and, and, yeah, yeah. yeah, he actually said they said to him, "How about hiring somebody like Girardi or one of these guys?" He said, "You know, I can't hire a guy that I gotta like gird myself to have a meeting with because he's such a formal." He literally said that. He literally said that. He said, that, "You know, I, I need someone who's easier, someone who knows less, someone who's less formidable." Ooh, baby. Yeah, it's awful. Uh, so go ahead. So well, that was interesting. That whole thank uh, you. pedigree uh, well, thank stuff, you. even yes. though it was baseball. Yeah. Um, okay. So back to business. Back to business. Yeah, I read uh, a, an interesting um, obituary in the New York Times about Clayton Christensen, mm-hmm. guru of disruptive innovation. Now, unfortunately, he uh, died. Uh, he was only sixty-seven. And uh, he had uh, um, been diagnosed with leukemia. He had also, he had been fighting cancer for a number of years and also had had a stroke. But he's famous for a book uh, that he wrote in 1997, The Innovator's Dilemma. And uh, it really, uh, people talk about it um, as being, you know, one of the key, um, you know, books uh, about uh, business written in the 1990s, and it really discussed uh, the his assertion that the best companies, um, the big companies who succeed by listening responsibly to customers, <coughs> investing aggressively in technology products that satisfies customers' next generation needs, etc., were the exact reason why these guys end up failing because uh, they're confronted by smaller, more nimble, more modern companies that uh, can, you know, turn on a dime compared Mm. to these uh, huge um, old businesses. Uh, So anyway, he um, he's an interesting guy. He actually um, was uh, in the Church of uh, Jesus Christ of the Latter Day Saints. And uh, he, after he graduates uh, from college, he actually uh, serves his time. You know how they uh, take off a couple of years mm-hmm. um, for uh, proselytizing. Right. Um, he serves in Korea, mm-hmm. uh, South Korea, and actually learns to speak Korean, which is you know interesting. He he then ends up uh, at um, MIT. And uh, he was a Rhodes Scholar. He studied at Oxford, of course. Right. He graduated what, from Harvard Business let me just, School. Can I cut in here? What's, yeah. what's his theory? What makes him interesting? I mean, he had a great background. and He went to school. He was religious. But uh, what's uh, his thing? His thing, I guess, was this book. Okay. Um, that uh, allegedly uh, had a huge impact. Well, look, I, I, can, I, I don't remember the book. Um, it might well be impactful. I can certainly understand that uh, there are smaller, n- more nimble companies that are able to do things that the uh, the dominant companies cannot. Uh, maybe that's what happened to Fairway. But uh, beyond that, uh, I'm not sure. I don't know. I just found him interesting. He's an interesting combination of uh, he remains uh, quite religious. Yeah. 
And uh, he, you know, it's interesting to me that, uh, you know, partly because he's religious, he ends up in uh, South Korea. He probably gets exposed to uh, other uh, ideas about business and is more uh, open to those things. Um, But anyway, he's tremendously successful uh, in the private sector and then as a professor. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, But then, of course, he has health issues and he begins to think about life and, uh, you know, um, you know, how do you measure uh, your own success? And this is what was just uh, um, kind of uh, resonated with me. He writes, um, I know I've had substantial impact. But as I've confronted this disease, it's interesting to see how unimportant that impact is on me now. He says, don't worry about the individual prominence you have achieved. He continues, worry about the individuals you have helped to become better people. Oh, that's fair. Um, So it's just, uh, I don't know, interesting to me because I went to business school around the same time. Uh, do you remember you know, the Do you remember the book? Uh, no, no. The book is uh, the book was actually published in ninety seven. Okay? Mm, okay, so both he and I are going to business school uh, in the late seventies. He graduates in seventy nine from Harvard. I graduate in seventy nine from Columbia. Um, you know, it's just uh, for me personally. Okay, uh, we're both uh, business majors. Our lives took entirely different paths. I think that's fair, and not all due to him being possibly a lot smarter than I am. Uh, who knows? Uh, you know, some some of the paths he's been on are because of his, uh, you know, religious devotion, etc. You're lucky. So, may have had a very broad He also played basketball. Well, then it's, he's okay. You know, he's, he, you know he, he was probably a mathlete, Daniel, to be honest. Don't assume that. Usually, if someone's a mathlete, the obituary features that in the first few paragraphs. I think he was a smart guy in econometrics. <sighs> You're assuming a lot there. Guy, do you read this other article? Well, you know, I'm thinking a lot yeah. about uh, things I want to see mm. uh, in and around Broadway. Yeah. I'm still thinking about that play Six. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did we talk about that before? Yeah. It's, uh, you know, a, a kind of an upstart yeah. from England written by some kids uh, about the uh, Six Wives of Henry VIII. And either it's going to be great... Either it's going to be the next Hamilton yeah. or it's going to be a bomb. Who knows? But I'm intrigued. Okay, I'm intrigued. Good. Seems like fun. Right. But then I read about another thing this week yeah. that is a play that I know that's trying to come to Broadway, and that's called Blue, a jazz and soul-inflected play written by Charles Randolph Wright with music by Nona Hendrix um, and lyrics by both artists. Now, this is a play that we saw about 20 years ago, a roundabout production starring Felicia Rashad. And uh, actually, Felicia Rashad is directing this new production. Okay. Okay. It's uh, a play about an African-American family. Uh, They have a successful um, funeral business. And... uh, Felicia Rashad played uh, the mother, the or daughter-in-law in the family, yeah. okay, who has her own ideas. And then there's a quite a strong-willed matriarch, older uh, 
female character in it as well. And uh, so this time around, they're trying to bring it to Broadway. They can't get it to Broadway. You know why? They can't get a theater. Oh, that's a problem. Uh, You know, Broadway is such a hot real estate at the moment because of all the success the plays have had in the past uh, couple of years. You can't get a theater. So it's going to open at the Apollo uptown. Mm -hmm. Okay. So Rashad is directing it. She's done some directing. And... L- Leslie Uggams is going to play the older matriarch <laughs> That's so of the family. Yeah. How old is Leslie Uggams? Well, she, she's playing the, an older character. Good. Okay, Good. she's seventy six. Oh my gosh, she's older than that. Um, no, she's seventy six. I don't believe. And uh, she's actually on the board of the Apollo, yeah. so it makes some sense. Yeah. She had an in, so, uh, so she got the job. part. Yeah. The um, the star role, the Rashad role, is going to be played by Lynn Whitfield. Mm-hmm. Now I don't know her, but she has a tremendous pedigree. Not familiar. She's been a lot of a lot, a lot of stuff, movies, mm-hmm. um, television, etc. So I remember. Music in this is great because okay. there's some there's some re um, for some reason uh, the main the main character looks back and uh, at an encounter or has an encounter with a uh, great blues singer jazz singer or pop singer I don't know how you would term it and the songs in the play are great and really kind of gave me an interest in that kind of music. So I'm excited uh, to see that again. Really looking forward to it. And we got to remember, oh, you know who else is involved with this production? John Legend. He knows music. Well, he has money. How about that? Uh, You're telling me John Legend doesn't know. He's financing it. I mean, it doesn't take a genius to figure that out. Yeah, but he might know what he's uh, yeah, no, listening to. A lot, lot of people who know. But uh, the point is, that's why he's involved. All right. So, um, look, we'll look Boy, for you're it. you're tough. Well, look, I didn't say I don't want to see we it. We really like this play. I'm looking forward to seeing we it We can again. see it. I'm just glad that they got someone you know, with deep pockets behind it. I with you. I can find plenty of people mm. who will take me to the Apollo. You know, I would start In fact, looking, I could take the A train I, all by myself. You might start starting looking for someone to take you to the sixth play. And then we'll work No, on. I've already found that. Sadie's dying to All see right, it. All right, good. Okay. Progress. I think that's going to be fun. It's going to be a little too modern can, can I get for to, you. Can I get to Eli Manning? Because uh, everyone wants to hear me on Eli Manning. Uh, here's the deal. So Eli Manning retired. We all know who Eli Manning is. Two so, great men what? of the New York Giants retiring in the same month. What? You and Eli. <laughs> right, yeah. So, and, so Eli Manning. Here's the deal about Eli Manning. I mean... I don't want to get into how good was Eli Manning, how, how it wasn't good Eli Manning. Eli Manning, to say Eli Manning's career is unique, uh, doesn't really capture it. Eli Manning, is we, people go on and on about and, and take we have gone sides on on. about. We've yeah. talked about Eli many is that times. He has had, uh, during the regular season, what you'd call an average career. He has his ups, he has his downs, he has the detractors, he has his supporters. He looks good, he doesn't look good. The team, the team up and down, doesn't often look like a great team. But... But, here's the but, and here's the thing that, again, unique doesn't begin to describe it. There have been two playoff runs by Eli Manning which defy all logic, and I mean that literally, and you almost don't know what to make of it. One was in 2008, and you had a coach, uh, Tom Coughlin, who was about to lose his job. The Giants were muddling along. They eke into the playoffs. They win the first playoff game. 
Then they go to Lambeau Field in Green Bay to play the Green Bay Packers, where they're supposed to get beaten badly, particularly since it's super cold. And the Packers love that. And they play a game in which in overtime, they win. And they win because Eli Manning outplays Brett Favre, which is startling. Brett Favre is a Hall of Fame quarterback. Everybody knows him. He loves playing in the cold. Blah, 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 blah. He's got a better team. And just to show you where we are in 2008, this is what Archie Manning, Eli Manning's father, said at the time about that game. Quote, we're not saying that Eli's Phil Sims are anything like that. Literally, that's what he's saying. Okay. I just never thought Eli was as bad as some people thought he was. That's, that's what high they, praise from a dad. Isn't after it? they win the championship <laughs> game. So that's where we are. And everybody's going, what the hell's going yeah, on? That's my son. He's not so bad. So, so, here, so, so this is what this sets up. In, I mean, this is just, to me, uh, people talk about David and Goliath. This is, Star Wars is the best analogy. So the ne- now the Giants are in the Super Bowl against the New England Patriots, who that year are undefeated. There's only one team in the history of the NFL that went undefeated all the way through the playoffs and won, the Miami Dolphins some years ago. The uh, New England Patriots are trying to duplicate that. They have a super, super team. They're an enormous favorite against these upstart, what the hell are they doing in the Super Bowl, Giants. And the Giants are playing them, and the game's going on, and the Giants are somehow staying in the game. And it gets to late in the game, and the Giants are, within a few points, um, losing. Uh, with like two minutes to go or something like that. And you're watching as a Giant fan, and part of you is saying, well, listen, they didn't get embarrassed. They were like 20-point underdogs. They're not getting embarrassed. It's fine. It's cool. We're going to lose. Everybody loses the Patriots. And they get the ball, and they start moving down the field. And you're watching the game, I can tell you, as a Giant fan, and you're saying, I don't understand what's going on. I mean, it's like it's like a young Han Solo or something like that. There's someone at the controls this kid, this quarterback, understand that the Patriots have beaten his older brother. I mean, it's this is like a biblical discussion. They've beaten his older brother, who was the great quarterback of all time. The only one who could conquer the older brother, Peyton Manning, were the Patriots. And now the Giants throw his younger, doesn't know what the hell he's doing, brother in there. And he's sitting in the spaceship, wide-eyed, getting ready for some kind of saber fight. And it doesn't make any sense. And he starts moving down the field and moving down the field. And uh, he throws this impossible pass to this guy who like never caught a pass in the in the NFL, David Tyree, and he never caught a pass again after this. And the guy makes an amazing catch, and he like goes on and he throws the touchdown pass, and the Giants beat the Patriots, and it doesn't make any sense in NFL history. It's the greatest Super Bowl of all time. Crazy, all right. So you're saying, well, everyone has his moment, or some people do. Lucky for Eli. And here's what's the capper. Four years later, four years later, the same thing. Giants screwing around. They're not a great team. Eli's not so great. Blah, 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 blah. Playoffs again. Playoff run. They're stumbling through. They're winning. No one understands exactly why. They find themselves in the playoffs. Who are they playing? The Patriots. The same thing. Darth Vader's group is there, right? And they have to deal with, you know, the force. He's dealing with the storm patrol there. And they're doing the same drill. Except this time, the Patriots know what they're dealing with. They've had four years to prepare for revenge against this kid who destroyed them the last time against all logic. And it sets up the same way. The same way. 
Giants are down by a couple of points. Two minutes to go in the game. Giants have the ball on their own, like, 10-yard line. The first play of the series, Manning goes back to the pass. All right, again, as a Giant fan, you're going, I don't know who this kid is. I don't know what the hell he's doing. Goes back to pass, looks off all the defenders, throws this 50-yard pass to the left sideline over two defenders to a third-string uh, receiver named Mario Manningham. Seems to catch the ball right by the sideline. Completion. Crowd's going crazy. The Giants are on their way. And you, I've heard the audio of this. I've heard the audio of this. And they have the audio of the New England Patriots sideline. And they're all yelling right away, out of bounds. He's out of bounds. He's out of bounds. And they go to look at the replay. And they do the replay. And there's one voice, deep voice, like Darth Vader. He's in bounds. It's Tom Brady. They know they're dealing with the force. They don't know what the hell they're going to do. Move down the field. Giants win another Super Bowl. It doesn't make any sense. It will never make any sense. So where does that leave you? All this discussion now, does, does Eli belong in the Hall of Fame? And I, you know, I recall there was a conversation after the second Super Bowl. And Eli's talking with some sports guy at WFAN. And the question is, you know, he said, well, Eli's always an all-shucks all interview. Yeah, we do. You know, I hope the fans, I'm glad the fans are excited. We really appreciate their support. Uh, I know we have our ups or downs. But, you know, I hope, you know, they were rewarded. And the guy on, on FAN says, Eli, you don't understand. You're never buying another meal in this town again. Because no one's done this. No one will ever do this. This is the greatest thing that's ever happened in New York sports. And whether he's in the Hall of Fame or not, I don't know. But I think that's absolutely true. 20 years from now, Eli will be in a restaurant in Manhattan. And somebody's going to send over a thing of champagne. And maybe it'll be us. (laughs) But there's nothing like it. There's no sports career remotely like Eli Manning's. And now we know. Yes, now we know. Okay. Okay. So until next week. This is Tamson Granger. And Dan Abuhoff. With Tamson and Dan, read the paper. See ya. See ya.